Welcome to the Before You Buy or Sell a Business podcast, where we help buyers and sellers learn more about the acquisition process, discuss recent transactions, and stay up to date on the latest news in the market. Here's your host, Jared Johnson. All right, so I'm excited today. I've got an attorney on the podcast. So how are you doing, Scott? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. All right, so we got Scott Oliver, and there is... Uh, a little back and forth with the name of the firm. So maybe you could clarify for the world so they actually understand exactly how to say it from now on. <laughs> it's Lewis Capus. Capus, not capes, not caps. Lewis Capus. All right. Perfect. <laughs> That's exactly what I wanted to cut. We can be done now. Okay. Perfect. Done. <laughs> Fastest interview ever. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're on here. Um, you know, one of the biggest things that everyone deals with when buying or selling a business is the legal side. So it's great to to hear, um, you know, some, some of the, uh, challenges and some of the terms and stuff that we can go over as far as a legal aspect. And then of course with SBA lending. So maybe we can start off, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, college, all that good stuff. Yeah, definitely. So I actually grew up about 40 minutes east of here. We're in Indianapolis, Indiana right now. Uh, although we do deals in all 50 states for our clients, that's kind of where our hub sits. I grew up in Newcastle, Indiana, ended up going to Purdue after I was chasing a girl who told me that, hey, she wanted to be a lawyer. So, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer, too. <laughs> Uh, went to Purdue, kind of dug into it a little bit more and figured out, you know, I, I'm pretty good at this law thing. I really enjoy some of the skills that are needed in order to become an attorney. So really, ever since that point, I kind of set my eyes on going to law school and becoming a corporate attorney. And she did the same thing. So we ended up going to IU uh, for law school, graduated at the same time, passed the bar. I knew I wanted to work in Indianapolis because it's around where our family is. But I said, you know, I want to get outside of my bubble. Uh, so I started doing SBA lending and closing deals in all 50 states rather than just sitting in Indiana and just doing the Indiana deals. Cool. So did you come straight to the firm right out of school? Yeah, I actually, we have a summer associate program at Lewis Capus where we take usually two to three law students during their second year of law school and come here and rotate at the firm to figure out what they're good at, what they enjoy doing. So I started doing that while in law school and eventually was given a full-time offer to start here after I passed the bar and it's been here ever since. Cool. Did you pass the bar the first time? I did pass the bar the nice. first time. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I would have edited that out otherwise. That's okay. Um, and then the girl you were chasing... What happened? Well, we ended up getting married. Awesome. So she's an attorney as well? <laughs> yeah, I try to say that that's kind of like the persuasiveness that I have when I'm talking to clients, right? Exactly. I persuaded her to think I'm not a jerk and to actually get married to me. So, Well, that's what they always say, that you can tell how well someone is with sales based on you know how their spouse looks and I guess how they are. So you got an attorney for a spouse, so good job. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I love your posts with your, with your kids as well. It's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I guess we'll just kind of jump right into it. You know, what should buyers and sellers consider uh, when they're putting together a deal as far as like all the third parties they should bring in? What would you recommend? Yeah, so I'm a big proponent of that. And I, I refer to it as a deal team, right? So we're typically on the lender side. So we're lenders facing. But when buyers are looking to put together a team, one of the first things that they need to look at is, is your attorney that you're going to hire experienced in M&A transactions? So mergers and acquisitions, if it's a business acquisition. But I always say to go a step further as well, because they have to be familiar not only with business acquisitions, but the specific type. Because as you know, SBA is a whole different animal. It's a different beast. Uh, they need to be able to do lower to middle market business acquisitions. 
Sometimes we'll get an attorney for the buyer on the other side that prepares a purchase agreement. And let's say that that attorney was somebody's friend from the 90s who did, you know, their dad's divorce or something like that. And the attorney is way in over his or her head. Uh, not a bad thing. They're probably great family law attorneys, but they're not experienced in M&A as M&A counsel. That's a big issue. But then the other side of that same coin is, well, I'm going to hire the largest law firm in the United States and get the managing partner of the M&A practice group, and it's going to be fantastic. Unfortunately, that's not usually the case. They're very, very competent, but if they're used to doing $1 billion, with a B, dollar deals, and then you put a $4 million business acquisition in front of them, they're going to try to negotiate that document, they're going to bill the party to death, and they're not going to understand the specific nuances of SBA transactions. Uh, so what I will say is find M&A counsel, talk to them, say, have you ever seen an SBA financed acquisition before? Are you familiar with the types of requirements that a bank or a non-bank lender might have? And how have you gone about getting that deal to the closing table? If you find somebody in that niche market, you're going to have basically a walk in the park, so long as the deal and the seller and everybody else is you know, abiding by what they have to do to get the deal done. Do you recommend that they always have counsel as far as like buyer and seller? And then, you know, obviously the bank, we, you know, we typically do that, but do you recommend they always do? I would greatly prefer it. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, anytime that there is an attorney involved, it's usually smoother. It's just when we get to that, that sweet spot of somebody who's seen an SBA lower to middle market deal before, that's where we can be really effective at getting things done. Yeah, I could, uh, I could definitely see sometimes they just seem to get a little out of control. And then I guess the complexity of the deal also makes a difference. Um, if, if someone's buying a, a small franchise yogurt shop, probably don't need someone as much as a $5 million construction company with four entities and a bunch of different contracts to review and stuff. So definitely makes sense. It so. really depends. And, and that's like the famous lawyer's word, right? It mm -hmm. depends. Uh, but Whenever somebody is buying a business, buying real estate, franchise, or whatever it is, I like to think of the fact that, you know, this is their entire life, at least the business side of their entire life. So even if it is a small yogurt shop and maybe it's a, I don't know, $450,000 transaction, that's still pretty important. And small nuances that may, uh, they may get a form and it may not be covered in that form. They don't think that they need counsel it can make a big difference uh, for the performance of that business well into the future. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, and then I think same thing goes with CPA, you know, any, anybody else, obviously the bank you work with, um, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you want to make sure they're very experienced and they know mm -hmm. what they're doing. So yeah, they, yeah some the, great advice. Picking your lender is incredibly important. Obviously there's PLP, GP, do they yeah. do SBA, all of those types of considerations. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's one thing that, that I try to cover every now and then a lot of times that's one of the first things I'll talk to borrowers about when, you know, a broker refers me or they're, they're trying to get some information. I try to explain to them that although there's about 1600 active SBA lenders, there's probably four or five that do the majority of the business acquisitions. Right. And so you got to make sure you're working with someone that knows what they're doing. Um, you don't want to go to a bank that it's going to tell you no, but it's not because there's something wrong with your transaction. It's just there's something wrong with them as far as they don't want to do those types of deals. So it makes sense. Great advice. Um, all right. Something that I know we're probably going to spend a little bit of time on um, that people tend to uh, be on completely one side of the fence or the other. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the difference between an asset and a stock sale. Yeah. And that's one of the things we get when we get a deal in and the 
attorneys talking to his or her client and they say, hey, are you doing this as an asset sale or a stock sale? That's going to be uh, different for the bank as well. So they want to know that upfront. But from the buyer and the seller's point of view, you have to start thinking about what does it mean to have an asset sale? Well, you're buying equipment, you're buying goodwill, you're buying machinery, you're buying all of these different things, but usually the seller is retaining the liabilities in those situations most of the time. Um, so we're talking about things like debts, lawsuits, all of that. You're getting the company, but you're getting it via an asset sale. That's different from an ownership acquisition, such as a stock sale or a membership sale, where you are quite literally getting that company as it exists, along with all of the debt, all of the issues, all of the employees, typically, and other aspects. So it looks very different. And you need to really consult with your attorney as well as your tax professionals uh, for the implications that might be there. From the lender side, there's quite a few considerations as well. Uh, what we do internally for any of our clients is we have a tailored, customized uh, checklist. If you want to call it, we call it a, a DLP here. It's digital legal pad, but it forms itself to the deal and the specific requirements. And when we have an asset sale versus a stock sale, there are certain considerations with a stock sale that aren't there with an asset sale. So is there certificated stock, for example? If there's certificated stock and the lender is going to finance the purchase of that stock, they need to take that stock as collateral. And you could call it a general intangible in your UCC1. I don't want to bore your audience or anything <laughs> like that. But if there's physical certificates, those need to be completed along with the next certificate that transfers the ownership and they need to be sent back to the bank. So a lot of times, even when we're working with clients and they've said, hey, we want to do a stock sale, I'm working with the closers and saying, okay, know at the very beginning, this is a stock sale. What you're obtaining prior to closing is going to be different. Here it is, make sure that buyer and seller's counsel knows this early in the process rather than being bombarded at closing because that causes a lot of headaches. Oh yeah, yeah, we've had some struggles many times where they're like, wait, we were supposed to grab those or mm -hmm. when when did you tell us to send them? Like 10 times, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, so as far as liability goes, as far as what you can kind of speak to the difference between the asset and the stock purchase, maybe give us a high level view of it. I'm sure we could talk for hours about it. But. Yeah, and you really could. And there's a lot that goes into it. But at the end of the day, you're thinking about both structuring aspects for the deal. Uh, we could go into that uh, as well for probably an hour or so yeah. if you wanted to. Uh, but also, what are you getting and what do you want? Whenever you're doing an asset purchase and you're buying all of the business assets, you're thinking all of these contracts, are they assignable? Can I take uh, an interest in all of these different things? What am I truly getting when I take my bag and I purchase up all of the assets? Whereas getting the business itself, you're wondering what does the business look like right now when I take over, how is it going to change, if at all? Am I going to be dealing with these employees? Are they already under contract? There's a lot of different considerations uh, that go through the mind of an SMB, a small to medium-sized business owner at those times. So if you were looking at a transaction yourself, are you going to look at it specifically based on the industry type, the history of the business, and, and kind of determine what liability as a buyer you're going to take on and then determine if you want to do an asset or a stock sale. So I know obviously there's tax implications as well. So 
you kind of have to look at it from both sides. But is that how you would normally look at it? Yeah, if I if I were not the attorney driving the bus and I were a buyer, uh, what I would want to do is get a quality of earnings specialist to come in and look at the potential deal, get somebody to come in and look at the reputation of the business, what their projections are, and decide, do I want to take on everything that comes with buying this business and keep it existing? Or do I want somewhat of a clean break just to take those assets, take that business and kind of go on my own under my own identity uh, to, you know, kind of revamp the shape of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, I think a lot of it just is also determined on what the the business has in the way of contracts. Right. Um, we see a lot of clients starting to lean more towards stock purchase because they're learning that it's a little bit easier, especially if you're dealing with the government, um, any, anything like that. It's, it's a little easier to kind of just jump into that driver's seat rather than have to go back and get everything redone again. So, and then as far as like SBA guidelines go, is there anything specific that you could speak to as far as uh, the difference between asset and stock purchase? Oh, right now they're they're pretty similar. Uh, there is a whole section in Standard Operating Procedure fifty ten six about changes of ownership. And whenever you're doing a change of ownership, whether it's an asset sale or it's a stock sale, you've got to go through the different qualifiers in order to have the deal approved. Uh, but they're very similar because in an asset sale, you're buying substantially all of the business assets. In a stock sale, you could have a situation where, hey, you know, you and I, you're a 70% owner, I'm a 30% owner, and I want to buy out your remaining interest, resulting in 100% ownership by me. That's eligible. I can't only do a partial buyout of your interests. That's a little bit of a different nuance that currently uh, frustrates some parties, uh, and some parties don't fully understand going into the transaction. They want their partner, let's say, to stay on as a minority interest holder of 10%. Well, you can't do that under the current regulations. It has to be a full change. Well, then I guess in about a month, there might be some changes with that as well. So, um, yeah, I think we we got kind of blindsided on what was it Friday night with yes. with some updates. And I haven't had a chance to read through all of it yet, but maybe you can uh, make sense of it when we get done with this for me. Definitely. <laughs> glad to come back again. We should hear more today, uh, okay. actually. And then in the coming weeks, it'll be quite a lot of movement. Nagel's right. coming up as well at the end of the month. So yeah. there'll be a lot of clarifications that'll be coming out. That'll be good. Yeah. So cool. Okay. So then uh, let's maybe move a little further. We'll go to, you know, kind of researching some of the documents. So on the purchase agreement, um, if you had to pick just a couple things to really make sure is in there and buttoned up, what, what would those things be? I think the most important thing is to have a draft prepared early. Uh, so I'm coming at this as bank or lender's counsel. Uh, and to have a draft when the deal comes in and to be able to look for red flags very, very quickly is helpful to all parties, uh, including my client, the bank, including the buyer and the seller, just to make sure the eligibility issues, that there are no eligibility issues. Uh, but when you're going through a contract, there's a lot of nuances. But from the bank's perspective, when you're looking at an initial draft, we're looking at you know the 101 things mm -hmm. in some instances. We're looking at who is the buyer on this contract? What type of transaction is it? Is it a stock sale? Is it an asset purchase? Because those questions and who is the buyer goes back to how the deal is initially structured. So while it seems very, very simplistic, it's pretty critical. Because if you get to a situation where we get closer to closing and they just pour it on you, that it's a different entity that's involved. Or, hey, no, we want to do a stock sale. Well, it's not just that easy. It's not the flip of a switch. We have to go back to credit underwriting. We have to make sure that the deal is still eligible. So all of those things go into who are the parties on the transaction. I'm then going through those contracts line by line and looking at things like the purchase price. 
Is it the same as what was approved by the bank? Are there any post-closing adjustments, which are a real hot topic and a real issue? Are there any sort of accounts receivable mass aspects that we have to look into? Uh, all of those things are project pieces that you want to identify early so that we can start talking with the attorneys and saying, hey, it's an SBA transaction. Uh, this is a little bit different. Here are the nuances. Here's what we need to do to make this an eligible transaction. Once you get past the purchase price, you're looking for things like closing logistics. When is it closing? Where is it closing? Is there an earnest money deposit? Are there any sort of prorations that we need to be aware of? Uh, those are always things that you want to identify very early on in the process. When you go through the contract itself, it's it's the nuts and bolts of the transaction. So you're also looking at what do the schedules look like? Are there any excluded liabilities? Are there any non-competes? I know we're going to talk about that here in a little bit, but what does that non-compete look like? Is the seller staying on? The seller better not be staying on for more than 12 months, you know, consulting services, those types of things. But when we look at the nuts and bolts of the contract, we know it early. And that keeps coming back to the same key that I say over and over again is get it done early, figure it out early so that it can be as a smooth of a closing process as it possibly can be. Because, you know, SBA has a lot of hoops sometimes. You got to be organized. Well, especially I think one of the things that's that's a little frustrating from a lender side is when people say, well, SBA takes forever that, you know, the, the transactions take so long. And a lot of that can be avoided by doing things up front and working on the purchase agreement up front, I think is one of the, one of the biggest things. I mean, I've, I've closed deals from start to finish in, in 20 days before, and then we've had some that take over a year, you know? So, and you know, usually the, the one thing is, is just working on it up front. So I've been having a lot of people and it seems like it's coming from a lot of the like search fund world, SMB world, where they seem to be wanting to do an LOI up front and then going through the process, getting the loan approved, and then switching to, you know, a full-blown purchase agreement. Um, and I don't, I don't really completely understand why people are doing that, other than maybe if they're just kind of doing a shotgun approach and throwing LOIs all over the place. But if you know for sure you're going to buy that business to the point that you're working with the lender, you're starting to spend some money on it, you know, as far as you can see, why don't people just move straight to a purchase agreement? A lot of times people don't move straight to cut straight to the chase because they do want a little bit of wiggle room. Uh, and I know that's not what lenders like to hear sometimes, but the LOI is really just the start of a conversation. It's it's the dating, right? It's mm -hmm. saying, hey, I am a buyer. I want to buy your business. Here are the general terms that I am probably going to agree to. Most of the time in those LOIs, the LOIs themselves aren't binding. They're not legally binding, but it's at least a showing of what? Intent, right? It's in the name yeah. letter of intent that I intend to buy your business. I'm serious about buying your, your business. And here's what it's probably going to look like, more or less. If you have that document, there's a little bit of a relationship that forms between the buyer and the seller, and they know now I'm going to engage counsel, or maybe they've already get engaged counsel. Now I'm going to go to my bank and say, hey, here is what I am looking at. Can I get a commitment? And that gets the gears turning in motion for a full-blown purchase agreement to be prepared. And normally when you're seeing these LOIs, they're probably not 20, 30 pages in length. They're usually you know, two, three, maybe five pages in length. And they talk about some of those critical terms purchase price, uh, liabilities, who are the parties, is there a financing, is there not financing, what are the contingencies, all of these different preliminary things uh, that just show I'm interested, but we're not fully there yet. 
Yeah, so it seems like everyone's getting pulled in different directions. <laughs> the broker's usually pushing to do a full-blown purchase agreement because mm -hmm. then they know the deal is locked up, it's moving forward. The bank typically wants to see that as well because there's less things uh, for us to kind of uncover after we go through the whole process of getting, getting the loan approved. Um, but then buyer and seller sometimes want to leave their options open, which I've seen many times a buyer lose a deal because it's not under exclusivity. And then somebody else comes in mm -hmm. and says, Hey, I've got an actual purchase contract. So there's definitely some pros and cons to it. So. Yes. Yes. And a lot of times in those LOIs, this is more on the buy side uh, representation as well, but they'll include confidentiality clauses, exclusivity clauses, things like that, that try to prevent those things. Mm -hmm. But again, it's, it's a little or very, early in the game at the LOI stage and it's just saying we're serious we're going to keep moving forward and then everything gets filled in after that and sometimes when you fill it in that's when we will see deals that come in the door and I'll get a deal that's committed as an asset sale and I have an LOI it looks great we've talked about it with the bank but then a couple of days go by they engage counsel counsel talks to a tax expert and they say actually we don't want to do an asset sale for xyz reasons we're actually going to change this to a stock sale at which point i have to alert the bank talk to counsel say hey what are you guys doing get it clear come back to the bank and say this is what they're trying to do we're going to have to send this back see if it still gets approved nine times out of ten it does uh, and then we move forward with a credit amendment and an amended contract that is a stock sale yeah so most banks are typically fine with however you want to do it um, we would just appreciate if it was up front right to try to speed things again to speed things along if if buyer and seller are on the same page and they say hey i don't care if this takes six months to close as long as we get it right then okay mm -hmm. but when they're sitting there you know beating on each other trying to close it as quick as they can but then they want to keep making all these changes that's where you know deals can can blow up and everybody always says time kills deals so <laughs> we're trying to eliminate some of the time and also legal fees i guess you know so a, a big thing that we always say and it keeps kind of coming back to this point is is to be organized and to get it done early so whenever a deal comes in if there is counsel on the other side one of the first things that i do or i tell uh, any of my partners or associates to do is just call up that attorney and say hey five minute phone conversation let's not do this in email and let's just introduce one another let me give you my due diligence list say this is an sba deal here's what we need here are the nuances let's sketch this out Let's get a timeline going. And that should be happening as soon as we're engaged with legal on the bank side are engaged so that it's organized at the outset. There are no surprises. And hey, if it changes, just let us know right away. And if it does, we'll take it back to approval. It's not yeah, a deal. Your firm is really good about doing that. Um, it's one thing I, I like when we work with you is that we kind of know that you're going to grab you know grab the deal and run with it if there especially if there's other legal counsel but again going back to having competent legal counsel exactly. on the other side as well exactly. so the the deals that i have that that seem to go through real smoothly is is you know both sides have somebody that knows what they're doing and then you get involved and just kind of can get together and been on some some interesting zoom calls before um i think i had one with with chandler one time that was pretty fun uh between all the attorneys going back and forth and i remember one time you and i being on one that was was pretty good and we ended up still getting the deal done but yeah. it was pretty fun i think we call each other afterwards and we're like what was that <laughs> yeah i'm sure we could we could write novels on the stuff that we hear and see it's Let's pretty do crazy it sometime. yeah oh my gosh in all our free time all right. So, you know, I think that was a, a good uh, kind of overview of the purchase agreement. Maybe we can move on to non-competes. So maybe just 
first and foremost, just tell everybody what a non-compete is. Yeah. So non-compete, usually non-compete slash non-solicitation is saying that when you buy this business buyer, you buy the seller's business, the seller's not going to turn around and let's use a a yogurt shop. I think that's what you said earlier, right? Yeah. So you buy a yogurt shop in a small town and it's a small business loan to buy this small business. And the seller says, I'm getting out of here. Okay, well, great. I buy your business. All of a sudden, the seller buys a building across the street and starts selling yogurt. And everybody knows this specific seller and everybody is going now to the seller's facility rather than the buyer who just got an assignment of the lease, right? So if that happens, that's really going to hurt the ability for the buyer to generate revenue, to get customers and all of these different things, which in turn impacts the buyer's ability to repay what? The SBA note. So uh, the SBA is looking at those sort of things. It's not explicitly clear in the SOP that those types of aspects are required, but in virtually every single business acquisition deal, my lenders will have a non-compete, non-solicitation clause, both for their own protection of the SBA note, but for the buyer's protection as well. So those types of circumstances uh, don't come out out the gate. That's great. Um, And then as far as how they can be enforced. Um, I know that's probably a legal advice type question, but um, (laughs) maybe you could try to, I guess maybe I'll I'll try to lead you a little. Um, For, from kind of my understanding is when people ask me, well, what, why do you care so much? I mean, typically a a normal non-compete as far as what we see is five years, 50 miles. That's, that's pretty, you know, standard. There's, there's definitely sometimes where it's a specific state, county, specific customers, um, lots of different, you know, things that you can be, you know, kind of clarify. But as far as then they kind of ask me, well, why do you want this? I say at the, at the very least, it's scaring the seller enough or, having the seller kind of be tipped off to that if they go and violate this, they're at the very minimum going to incur a lot of legal fees, right? So maybe do your best to answer that as far as like how they can be enforced. Well, there's a lot to it. And we talk about being specialists in the M&A or the lending world, right? Mm -hmm. We're SBA lending specialists. We have a great group of buyer representation for M&A practice, seller representation and things like that. Non-competes, There are attorneys who make their entire careers off being non-competition lawyers. They are experts in those fields. And the rules of law for non-competes change from state to state. So I guess what I'm saying is dancing around the question is it all depends on the state and it depends on the specific language that's outlined in the non-compete. Most of the time, as a general rule of thumb, I mean, you're, you're correct. It does scare the seller a little bit and says, hey, you're not going to open up a yogurt shop across the street because something's going to happen. You've agreed not to do it. The terms in that non-compete could be anything from an injunction to legal fees for damages, all sorts of aspects. But most of the time, uh, what I see from colleagues in other fields who are non-competition experts are injunctions. You can slap the seller with an injunction and say, look, you actually signed a non-compete. You just opened up a yogurt shop right across the street. You can't do that anymore. And the court is going to enforce it. And yes, you are going to incur legal fees, as am I. But at the end of the day, if I prevail, there's probably a provision in the non-compete that says, seller, you're going to pay my legal fees. So not only are you getting slapped on the wrist for doing something that you weren't supposed to do, now you can't do it. In addition, you have to pay all of this money and figure something else out. Yeah. So again, it's it's extremely important to have that in the purchase agreement. And it makes sense why most SBA lenders and, and typically the SBA wants to see something in there. Yeah, yeah. We've, 
And there's there's always lots of different things you can kind of go back and forth. At. I think the funniest thing that I that I hear from day to day is we ask, well, why are they selling? They're retiring. And then they fight over the non-compete. I'm like, but if you're retiring or, or the best one is they're retiring and moving out of the country. OK, so do 10 years and, you know, unlimited miles. And then they go, well. No, I, I want to do two years, 25 miles. Well, why? If you're moving to another country. So I feel like a lot of times, too, it kind of gives you a really good gauge on what the seller's truly going to do after they sell the business. And so, people just don't like to tie their hands either. And a lot of times that's what happens. And this is just a, a minor point, but where you just said, you know, the entire United States of the world. That's something that we see a lot too, mm -hmm. uh, especially if we don't have sophisticated buy sell side counsel is we'll see a non-compete that on its face to us looks unenforceable. Right. Right. And we don't represent the buyer in most of our transactions, like when we're working with a specific bank, uh, but we'll say, ah, this does not look like it would be enforceable. Or at least there's a possibility that a court would strike it down because in most states, they're, the court's going to look at a non-compete and say that was unreasonable or that was overreaching. If you were to say you can't do business or operate as anything in the entire United States, that's going to be a problem for a court. And it might render the non-compete term unenforceable. That underscores uh, the importance of having somebody on the buy side to be able to say, here's what's standard. Here's what's market in Indiana, California, Maine, wherever it is. And here's what's enforceable. Uh, that's very important to look at as well. Yeah, that, that's some great advice because um, a lot of people say, oh, I'll just cover the whole country. But yeah. at the end of the day, typically, my understanding is a judge is going to look at that and say, you have to have the ability to make a living wage. Exactly. And if you're going to completely <laughs> take that out, then yeah. So moving down the list of things to kind of cover uh, could probably be a huge list if we really wanted to go forever. But uh, let's talk about leases. Yeah. You've talked about it a little bit already. Um, so maybe kind of walk somebody through with an SBA loan how a normal transaction goes as far as a buyer coming in and, and taking over a lease, writing a new one. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So whenever the SBA is looking at transaction, the requirement at the outset is, hey, you are going to have a lease. That lease needs to be for at least the term of the loan, including extensions. Uh, so that's the first thing that a buyer is usually going to see on the checklist from the bank's closer. Uh, and when they look at that, they get a little intimidated and they say, OK, well, I have a 10 year term, which is common in a business acquisition. I don't want to be tied up at this location for 10 years. And that's when you kind of have to remind them it's not 10 year term, it's 10 years, including extensions. So that could be a variety of different things. But what the SBA, and what the bank is looking at here is they want to know that the buyer has the right, the ability to operate at that lease location or another lease location for at least the term of the loan, because that might be a really valuable spot. That might be where all of the customers are. It might be right off the corner of somewhere where a lot of customers, where the business gets a lot of visibility from the customers. So that's your standard requirement on a lease. In some circumstances, a bank can waive that if the lease location is not important, if there's not really physical collateral, a lot of different reasons there, uh, but those are very specific. Uh, so keep that in mind as well. Um, but that's the big one with the lease and then the landlord waiver. Yeah, right. That's the. <laughs> so maybe you can, since you you opened that door, you might yeah, as well that's go right a, in. That's the elephant in the room, uh, and a lot of times when I'm doing presentations, usually virtually with these these banks across the country, they're always wondering how do we make that process smoother, because you get a landlord waiver or landlord subordination, whatever you want to call it, and you send it to a landlord. Most of the time, their reaction is no. 
I'm not going to sign that. And then you have to go through a whole different list of reasons that they need to sign it and reasons that their bank is asking for it. Uh, so the big thing with these landlord waivers is we have to make sure that there are no state specific, no lien rights in the landlord because the bank has to have a first lien on all business assets of the buyer. So the landlord's tenant does not have a senior lien on all of those business assets. Despite what they might want to have happen, we need to make sure that's subordinated. We also have to make sure that there is ability for us in the event of default to come to that location and recoup the collateral. That's not coming in and ripping out the HVAC or anything like that. That's somebody on the, you know, the servicing side, the liquidation side at the bank coming in, taking the assets so that they can liquidate it and repay the SBA note. Um, and that's pretty straightforward in the SOP as a requirement. Yeah, I would say the number one issue in the last probably 24 months has been dealing with landlords. Yeah, I get it. I think a lot of them are a little frustrated from COVID. And then it's just there's a lot of ownership change going on. And so you're getting a lot more of them kind of getting, you know, a lot of them, I think, are also getting frustrated with the amount of legal fees that they're having because mm -hmm. um, they had to do, you know, different things during COVID. And then now all of a sudden, then someone's moving out, moving in, they've got to deal with that. So yeah, the landlord waivers, typically, you know, a document that we'll send, I try to get it out right away. Um, if they're negotiating that lease, it's, it's really good to kind of also add that to their list of things to review. Um, I've had plenty of times where they, they don't give it to the landlord until the last second. And then we're sitting there back and forth for 30 days, trying to argue over one little tiny thing on there. So most of the time, uh, the landlord waiver is, is very important for, you know, going back to yogurt shop location matters lease is important and landlord waiver is important mm -hmm. because typically what we need is the equipment that's in there if if it was to go bad so um again it can go back and forth quite a bit um i've seen i, I don't know i'd probably say the worst one i ever saw was probably about 20 different mm -hmm. you know changes and and drafts before it finally came to an agreement on on certain things so um, again, makes sense to have good counsel on, on everyone's side. <laughs> and it goes back so. to the same point too. I know we keep circling back to it, but getting it out there early. I know that you yeah. do a fantastic job and first internet generally just does a fantastic job at everything when it comes to getting it out there early and being transparent. The landlord waiver is no exception because if you do get closer to closing or heaven forbid, please don't do this. You get the landlord waiver post-closing. That is not recommended by no. any uh, sense of the imagination, but you lose all of your leverage. Before you sign that assignment, before you sign that lease, all of these different things, you're pretty persuasive as a borrower and as a bank. But, you know, kind of when you're in a chokehold and you're trying to close in two days or, or you've waited to the last minute, you lose all that persuasiveness. It gets ugly and you can't just have your attorney uh, call the landlord and say, here's what the document says. Here's why we need it. Here's what the SOP says. We're not trying to get you or do a gotcha situation. What we're trying to do is comply with the SBA program and protect our borrower and protect our client, the bank. Yeah, I think uh, I heard some advice one time and said, it's like getting married. If you don't talk about everything up front, you can't get upset when in the middle of the marriage things pop up. It's kind of the same thing, you know, buy, buy, sell side, same with the landlord. It's a good idea to talk to them. It's same adding a partner to a business, yeah. you know, kind of same thing. So yeah, it makes, makes sense. Uh, hopefully um, some people will listen and, and speed up some deals here a little bit. So kind of moving down the line a little bit, uh, we'll talk about due diligence. You mentioned earlier uh, quality of earnings. 
Maybe we can just brush over that real quick, just explain maybe real quick what it usually entails and then, you know, when you recommend it. Yeah, and that's that's outside of at least legal for the buyer usually and outside of legal for the bank. So I'm stepping outside of my zone on the QOV, but it's somebody who's going in and really looking at the financial statements, really looking at the records of the business that's being purchased to make sure, hey, the buyer is getting what the buyer bargained for and what the buyer expects. Because those documents that they have to sift through, hundreds, if not thousands of pages at a time, and somebody has to go through it and decipher it and say, this deal looks good. These numbers look good. This is something that you need to move forward with. Quality of earnings is very different from the lender's due diligence, things like UCC searches, judgment searches, bankruptcy, litigation searches, all of those types of things. Those are to protect the bank specifically, uh, their lien position or any sort of exposure to the buyer, whereas Q uh, of E is something that the buyer will usually take on or, or engage as part of their deal team at the very beginning or shortly thereafter. So when you're doing the due diligence searches, you know, looking through UCC, you know, prior credit history, all of that, um, you're typically looking at pretty much anybody that is kind of somehow related to the transaction. What are you mainly looking for? Yeah. So whenever we or the bank that runs the searches does that, they're definitely looking at the UCCs of the buyer and the seller. Uh, because a UCC uh, financing statement, that is to place a lien on business personal property. If there is an existing lien against the buyer, the borrower on business personal property, obviously the lender is not going to have a first lien position on that business personal property, unless there's an intercreditor agreement or all of these other things that we could talk about. But generally speaking, that would be an issue. If it's a refinance, like the lender's refinancing a business debt, we have to make sure that that lien that's out there, we know there's going to be a payoff, there's going to be a refinance, and that's going to go away. All things to consider on the buy side. The sell side is usually where you see the results. So you have a borrower uh, and you have a buyer and maybe you have buy side counsel, maybe you don't. Uh, lender is usually going to be running their own due diligence searches. I'll get from time to time a seller due diligence search that comes back and the seller says, I have no liens. I have no debts out there. There's nothing. It's squeaky clean. You're not going to find anything. <laughs> all of a sudden we run these searches. There are five blanket liens from all of these different lenders. You know, Pick your name and insert it there. Uh, that's obviously an issue because that seller then cannot sell their business assets unencumbered to the bank. That is very important to not only the bank, clearly they would have uh, encumbered assets, uh, but also the buyer, because the buyer would be taking assets subject to existing liens. So we're running that on the buyer. We're running it on the seller. We're usually going to be running judgment liens uh, searches on all the parties as well to make sure that there's nothing out there that we need to know about. IRS tax liens, all sorts of different things, uh, and bankruptcy searches just to make sure that everything that's been said today is accurate and that there's no way that there's going to be an issue with the bank's collateral. Yeah. Great amount of items that you have to dig into and hopefully, you know, don't find too much, but no one's ever squeaky clean. Usually um, not. <laughs> you'll, you'll sometimes find even litigation. People will say that there's nothing out there, but then you find out that there's some sort of pending traumatic brain injury case with the buyer. Uh, and if that's the case and you have a traumatic brain injury case where maybe they were the um, defendant in the action, there's possible exposure there that could really impact the bank's interest. Same with the seller too. Any litigation that's out there could be a problem. So best thing to say is be transparent. Uh, don't try to hide anything because the bank is going to find out. Yeah. The buyer's counsel should find out too. But if not that, the bank, because we're going to make sure that our SBA guarantee is intact. That is 
a lot uh, to, for us to be able to do and for us to be able to make sure that the transaction is as airtight as possible. Well, and then again, going back to trying to speed things up, uh, mm. if they tell us ahead of time, then we usually know how to dig into it and try yeah. to clean it up. Whereas if we find it, and it's, it, I mean, nothing's more frustrating than when you, you work all the way through, get a loan approved, start working on closing, and then all of a sudden we get a call from you guys yes. going, hey, did you know that they have 11 <laughs> GCC filings with 14 different you know lenders? They're like, oh my gosh. Not yeah. a good day. Yeah, so... Lot to lot to look for there, um, you know, and then I think it's also good uh, doing an SBA loan and having outside legal counsel is also helps to make sure that the things are cleaned up, but then also kind of how to clean it up as well to make sure, you know, so sometimes we're researching things for quite a while before we figure out really what it is. Yeah. So we'll move on down to uh, seller carry notes. Um, again, probably trying to avoid some of the <laughs> legal advice again. You know, maybe you could just talk real quickly about how the SBA guidelines are with uh, doing a seller carry note on standby and then also just a traditional seller carry note and then also how it can um, affect injection. Yeah. And, and so those are, are great questions and very, very common, especially in business acquisitions, uh, because you can have seller financing in transactions. There's nothing that's prohibiting that. Uh, the difference between standby and non-full standby seller notes uh, is pretty nuanced and very, very important to understand uh, because it's pretty black and white with full standby. So we'll, we'll leave that for the end. But a non-full standby seller note means that that seller note is subordinate to the SBA note. We know that it has to be subordinated, but the bank can permit payments. Uh, so say that this is a $500,000 seller note and the bank is permitting um, monthly principal and interest payments, at least through the term of the loan, so long as the SBA note is not in default. That's all that, that most sellers care about is say, hey, I can get paid. And you can get paid so long as there's not an issue with the SBA note. Because at the end of the day, the SBA is not taking a second position to anybody. And they're not going to allow uh, somebody, a seller, to get paid before the SBA in a default scenario. Uh, so what you'll see in those situations are it's called the uh, SBA Form 155, the Standby Creditors Agreement. Uh, some lenders will just use that basic form uh, because it's a requirement or they will use their own form that incorporates all of the different requirements from SBA Form 155. Um, so I'll see it as a one page document all the way up to a 10 page document, depending on the preference. Uh, but in that document, it says things like, hey, you can accept payments so long as these terms are followed. You're not going to take action against the person who is signing the note, none of the collateral during the term of the loan, but hey, you can at least get repaid. Those situations are usually pretty much enjoyed. They're liked by the seller. Um, so it depends on the deal. Where it gets more black and white are the full standby situations. Uh, that means that there are no permitted payments of principal and interest at all during the life of the SBA loan. Okay. And the reason that sellers don't like that is because they're not getting paid for the life of the SBA loan, but they're getting a deal done, uh, which otherwise wouldn't have been able to have been done without the seller financing. The seller financing itself, when it's on full standby, could be used as injection uh, from the bank's perspective. That's the big key there, too, because if you have you know, a 10% situation and you want 5% to come from seller financing, the only way you're going to be able to do that is if there are no payments going to that seller during the life of the loan, period. Yeah. So they're very complex, but makes sense the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've seen them from a paragraph long to 25 pages long yes. for seller notes. So, um, I, I always find it funny when 
the seller or the buyer will contact me. Hey, do you have a copy of a seller carried? I'm like, no. <laughs> and even if I did, I'm not giving you one because it, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you how to structure this. And you come back later and say, Hey you guys, the, they didn't pay me. What do I do? I'm like, I yes. We, we yeah. struggle with that a lot too. And you know, one of your first questions was, you know, buy side rep and sell side rep. When we don't have a borrower who has counsel, a lot of times those parties will be reaching out to us and say, oh, do you have a draft bill of sale you could share? No, we don't. And the bank will reach out and say, well, can we give this seller, this buyer and seller, can we give them a draft bill of sale? No, you shouldn't. Because at that point, you're giving advice to somebody because they don't have somebody engaged. If something blows up, that's liability written all over it. Uh, so we do not like those situations at all. Uh, yeah, I, usually, I will typically tell them um, at the very minimum contact whoever's handling your escrow yeah because um, they they should be doing you know a lot of transactions like this and typically we'll have an attorney on staff that can help them yeah. with that if not probably look for a different escrow or somebody yeah. to handle the transfer of funds so um and then as as far as the you know five percent injection of the on full standby um the other question that i get almost every single time well, what happens if I make payments? Can I make payments? Uh, you know, when we're done, are you going to look the other way? And it's like, no. The, no. And then, and I always go back to form 155 and I remind them, mm -hmm. it specifically says in there that if you pay it off early when you're not supposed to and something happens, we, we can go to that seller and say, nope, you owe us that money. So yeah. um, something that people need to really take into consideration, if they're going to violate the rules, then they're, it could come back to them yeah. you know, later on down the road. So. Form 155 is pretty, pretty clear. Uh, and while we can't provide a form note for a buyer or a seller, right? Nobody can except for their counsel or maybe they find one on Google or something like that. What we can do is for a seller who is uh, providing seller financing is give them just a draft, a watermark draft form of Form 155, filled in as much as it can be. There's some information that you have to wait until closer to closing to give, uh, but give them that so that they can look at it and understand, I'm gonna sign this document because everything that we keep coming back to with the, with the rushes and things is, you don't want to have a situation where it's the day before closing, the seller gets the form 155 or, or a version of the form 155 and says, I didn't agree to this. That will 100% blow up a deal. And if you're going to blow up a deal, you want to blow it up at the very beginning, not the end. There's a lot of time to talk uh, and still figure something out, not at the closing table. Yeah. I, I want to say that one time you and I were on a call with somebody and that mm -hmm. was what... And I think he kept asking you to explain it. And you kept saying, I am not your attorney. I cannot answer that. <laughs> I remember the exact situation. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that until right now. That was that was a crazy deal. And then yeah, I think he ended up, he was like, I'm not signing this. You know, and that, that's what happens a lot of times. And we did give them a copy of it before. Mm -hmm. um, whether they read it or made it to him, who knows. But again, they didn't have legal counsel. And right. that, was, that was part of their problem because they would have had that up front their legal counsel could have interpreted it for them yeah. rather than trying to have the bank's legal counsel do yeah. it and then ended up signing it and we ended up closing. But yeah, it's always for some tough conversations at the end there. So man, we covered a lot. Um, I think every topic we could do a whole other hour on, but um, as far as like one of the major do's and don'ts, is there anything we didn't cover um, that maybe you would just like to throw out there? I think it, we covered a ton of them. I think the biggest do's uh, in these types of situations is, is 
be upfront, be transparent, uh, get the documents out there early, make sure that you're communicating properly, being organized and hiring uh, expert counsel. I know we can't say that you're experts, but hiring counsel that's competent in the type of transaction that you're doing. Uh, we talk a lot about during this uh, this podcast interview about business acquisitions. That's that's my bread and butter. That's my specialty. But remember, too, there are real estate purchase situations. There are standard refinance. There are working capital lines. There's all sorts of different types of SBA loans that a party can get. And it's important to think about what that specific purpose is when you're looking at counsel, too. Uh, so make sure that you're doing that. The big don'ts, uh, don't wait until the last minute. Don't fail to disclose things. That is that's just a huge red flag. Uh, don't hire just for a bargain. Uh, don't try to find the cheapest attorney. Don't try to find the most expensive attorney. Uh, yeah. Do what works best uh, for you. And then also just don't forget to communicate with your lender uh, and your closer. We could do a whole nother podcast on that, but like logistically, the banks, especially your bank, has a designated closer. The borrower can use that party to bounce ideas off of, to send documentation early, and to try to get things as streamlined as quickly as possible. So just don't forget to communicate. Those things are so important. Yeah, that's some some great advice for helping to get deals done. Appreciate it. So I always ask two questions at the end. <laughs> First one, do you or have you ever had a mentor? Yes, I've, I've been very blessed. I've my entire career to have fantastic mentors here at the firm. Uh, Chris Poling has been doing SBA for probably almost 30 years at wow. this point. He started it back when he had to run UCCs to the recorder, you know, go to in-person closings. It's came such a long way in those 30 years, but he's been fantastic. He's taught me really everything that I know, including how to all the substantive legal aspects, but also just how to be an ethical communicative attorney uh, with parties. Uh, so he is my my largest influence in SBA. But outside of that, I've got, I have people from banks, from lending institutions, uh, from other attorneys at other firms throughout the country that just kind of help ground me and figure out, you know, how do you best deal with clients? How do you scale a practice? How do you serve the most amount of people the best way that you can? Uh, so I've been very fortunate in that respect. Yeah, that's great. And then the final one, obviously been successful. How long, have, how long have you been doing this? Almost a decade. Okay. But you've moved up pretty quick. I mean, still in 10 years, you've gotten, you know, all the way to the top of the firm. So that's great. So what, what motivates you? Well, I love, I love SBA lending, which is an odd thing to say, maybe not for your audience. Maybe they get it right. Uh, but it motivates me to be able to see so many different types of deals and so many different people from so many different backgrounds in so many different states. I just said so many, so many times, <laughs> right? Uh, but every single deal that comes in, it's different. And every single time that we get something across our desk, or even if I'm not working on it, I know that somebody is kind of achieving their dream, which mm -hmm. is incredibly cheesy. But in our profession, the legal profession, there are a lot of different areas that are a little bit ho-hum, you know, maybe it's negative, very adversarial. Uh, in SBA lending, in the lending world, or buy-side representation, it's all towards a specific goal. And if you're doing it correctly, there might be bumps along the way, there might be headaches, but at the end of the day, when we're done with a closing, usually it's all around, hey, congratulations, buyer, congratulations, seller, you can go sit on a beach for the rest of your life. I don't know what you want to do, but everybody's happy. And we've actually moved the needle forward uh, to some extent. And it's, it's just a really good feeling to be able to do that 
for a career. I love practicing law and I love SBA. And those are two things that a lot of people can't say. I never thought about it that way because there are so many different avenues with, with legal, right? But majority of what you're doing as an attorney is probably not completely on the positive side like what, what you get to do every day. I never thought of that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So well, that's some, some great motivation. So I really appreciate your time. Um, hopefully you're not going to send me a bill or anything for this, but I already got it generated. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll look for it. (laughs) Oh man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. We hope you found this podcast informative and helpful. Please don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast player for more information, or if you'd like to discuss a transaction, please go to www.jaredwjohnson.com.